Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. We are recording. We just had a really fun discussion about Joe's obsession with atomic weapons, right? I mean, I mean, it's not atomic. It's it's um, fusion and and it's energy, and, and it's not weapons. It's creating energy. And I don't understand how this isn't the lead on every national broadcast right now. That they they reached a huge moment where where they where they achieved with fusion uh, the ability to create more energy than you put into the product to make that energy. It's still nuclear fusion. It's no. it's right. not it's nuclear, nuclear fusion. fusion. I mean, but we're getting into a no. territory. Wait, I, I every don't. every way that you create energy creates waste, and that's been the big problem with the nuclear power plants we already have. Is everybody's sitting on a ton of spent fuel rods that nobody in the world wants to take, and they've even talked about sending them off into space, as Carl Grossman, our columnist, has written about extensively. Nukes in space. Ah, uh, but but Annette. Uh, fusion energy does not create nuclear waste. That's one of the great things about it. There's no waste product, as a matter of fact. So it doesn't and like even create like French fries or something really good at the end. Other apparently than not. Apparently mm-hmm. not. But it, apparently, what they do is, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to learn more about this because I'm just fascinated by it. It's called the National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in California, and they, for a the tiniest of, of portion of a second were able to achieve fusion that exceeded the amount of energy that was required to get it there. And what they had to do is they have this little BB of hydrogen in a capsule and they fire 192 lasers at it until it heats to something like the core of the sun, basically, which takes a lot of energy to do. But now it released enough energy um, in this process that they're seeing it as a potential for a limitless source of energy with no waste products, which could be the answer to our problems in the next 10 years. So, that sounds super safe. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of not in my neighborhood. No fusion. <laughs> man. Uh-uh. I can see the bumper stickers, you know, fusion be gone. This is going up next to the sewage pit. That's going to scare a lot of people. People are afraid of wearing masks. Do you really think they're going to put up with fusion next door? Yeah. I, 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 would, I would welcome a fusion plant next door. There you go. <laughs> I can't wait for Michelle to have to cover that public hearing. I know there's going to be a lot of fusion nimbies out there. Let me tell you, <laughs> the fusion nimbies. I like it. I like it. Well, I, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of a parallel track to what we're really talking about today. Um, but let's do our introductions first, and then we'll launch into that. So, back at the controls is Bill Sutton, who's got kind of a cool, blurry. It's not quite blur background. You sort of have like a fisheye blur going on on your zoom camera yeah my life is kind of blurry and fish-eyed lately it feels like <laughs> Hi, Annette, i'm bill sutton i'm the managing editor of the express news group and also with this is Catherine g manu aka georgie hey uh, georgie hey Annette. this is georgie and i am one of the publishers of the express news group and back again is joe shaw with his fusion hat on hey uh, joe already monopolizing the conversation apologies i'm joe shaw exec executive editor of the Express News Group. 
and I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is the lovely and talented Michelle Trowering. We love Michelle. And Michelle has been writing a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff about kind of what we're talking about, although I didn't see fusion in your story this week. But it is the topic of climate change. And Michelle, I wondered if you wanted to jump in and sort of introduce this new series that we've just brought into the paper and talk a little bit about about the structure and what people can expect. And then we'll launch into this week's edition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this week on the front page of Residence, you'll see the first story in a 12 part series called The Rising Tide, which really is uh, aiming to take a look at the way that climate change is affecting us here on the East End uh, and specifically through that residential lens. So the first story uh, offers this snapshot of we where we are now. Uh, spoiler alert, it's not great, uh, but the rest of the series will um, aim to keep looking at that and tracking our progress as well as uh, giving residents uh, tips to help the planet from composting and recycling to outfitting your home for solar and electric energy, electric cars. So it'll really be a, uh, a broad look at this issue and I'm super excited to dive in. I think one of the interesting things in, your, in the story that you, the first story that you released is the whole idea that it, it, it happens in such a vacuum. I think it's really hard for people to wrap their head around a global problem um, when they're sort of really kind of zoned in on their own area, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's hard to think about all of the climate refugees who are having to leave Fiji or one of the islands in the Pacific when you're just sort of seeing, well, you know, what's happening locally and, and are, you know, the, it just seems like there hasn't been a lot of concerted effort of, of areas talking to one another or sort of working together to kind of figure out a, what the problem is and whether there's any kind of solution that can be enacted on anything other than like, I'm going to recycle my garbage, you know, level. Exactly. Yeah. That was an overarching theme that I, you know, topic of conversation that I had with a lot of our local officials specifically as to, you know, while we operate under home rule on the East End and in New York state, why aren't we all talking to each other while our issues are independent from community to community? A lot of them are very much the same. So I'm hoping, uh, that outside of residents being able to better understand what they can do um, at home, it'll kind of put a little pressure on our local government to say, hey, yeah, let's do this together instead of so patchworked. And we're, we're you know, obviously one of the areas that's sort of a canary in the coal mine, right? We're, we're being a coastal community. I mean, I think every community is going to have its own way that it experiences climate change. I think in the Midwest, the, uh, the weather patterns and the droughts and all of that, I mean, everybody's being affected in different ways, but we're gonna see it uh, fairly early on. If, uh, we're already seeing it, I think, probably with uh, rising, rising water levels, right? That's, that's one, of the, one of the ways that it's gonna start manifesting itself very early on. We are seeing it, but it's not as noticeable to the untrained eye, right? You know, it's like you have people who are working um, in this area and they're up against these issues every single day, but most of us aren't. So it's one of those things that 
you know, even the last couple of years, it's, it's sneaking up. And, um, but it almost, it almost takes on a, a kind of a, a cry wolf element where everybody, you know, where, where the professionals, the scientists, scientists, science and the, the elected officials, and, and everybody says climate change and effects from climate change. And, and you're not, you know, you're not seeing it directly necessarily. So everybody kind of takes a step back, I, I think, and, and doesn't want to necessarily focus on that. And I think part of part of the solution is just like you said, it's a global, it's a global problem. It's a global issue. There have to be global solutions and everybody has to get on the same page, um, you know, with it, I, I think. And I think to a certain extent, you've also seen COVID, you know, which we've been in for two years, you know, in locally, East Hampton Town, for example, was having these like really earnest conversations with their Hamlet studies and Montauk and like, how do we talk about coastal retreat and all these things? And it's like COVID happens and, you know, we've all kind of had to focus on that for two years. And now, I mean, not that the pandemic is at all over, but, you know, as we're hopefully emerging <laughs> into being able to focus on some new things besides the pandemic, you know, I think you are going to see a local refocus on how we deal with this because, I mean, I think as Michelle found out talking to people this week, I mean, it's happening and, you know, it's literally at our doorstep as a waterfront community. You know, one of the things I think is really interesting, which I'm, I just, which just occurred to me, is that unlike a lot of places in the world where climate refugees and those first affected by climate change are the poorest populations, out here it's the richest properties uh. that are going to get hit first. And you're talking about, I think it was really fascinating. It's like Michelle's story focuses on the fact that property lines are what they are, and you can move a house back, but at some point you're going to hit the back of your property and you cannot go any further. And that's going to create all kinds of really interesting issues. But I think it's really fascinating that our most wealthy residents are the ones who are dealing with this first and foremost with sand nourishment programs that they have to replenish and that kind of thing. So I wonder, can you talk a little bit about that, Michelle? Right, yeah. I mean, they're the ones who are living on these beaches that they themselves are paying to pump sand onto. Uh, there is a replenishment project that it's coming up on its 10-year anniversary in Sagaponic, Bridgehampton, and Watermill. And collectively, those residents spent $26 million to pump sand onto their beach and save it. And in some ways, it has been a successful project. But, you know, they are coming up on that expiration date and will be coming to the Southampton Town Board to present what they want to do moving forward, because something needs to happen. Not all that sand is still there. That's not how this works. Uh, so, you know, yes, some of them are very able. They have the means in order to protect their homes and keep them there. But at what point um, does it become futile? And, and it, that's the point where we need to mention FIMP that uh, the Fire Island to Montauk project is finally getting funded. And uh, a big part of the strategy on the East End is beach nourishment. They're going to be spending, you know, I, I think over the course of, of the, the entire federal project, billions of dollars um, and beach nourishment is gonna be an enormous part of where that federal spending goes. And a lot of people, that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way because as you said, beach nourishment projects are sort of designed not to last. I mean, the whole point is there is erosion and you're basically feeding the beaches to offset that erosion, but the goal is not to 
the goal is not to eliminate the erosion. It's just to mitigate it by dumping more sand on, which gets washed out, right? And also not put in hardened structures, which really destroys things. That's been a big issue. I mean, the hardened structures was kind of what um, doomed those parts of um, New York City and after um, Superstorm Sandy, you know, because unlike out here where you have, in some cases, like a double set of dunes, which are there to do exactly that protect from erosion, you know, all of those hardened boardwalks and houses and sidewalks just, it just creates a wall that the water just completely destroys, you know. And it, it's such an interesting line that a lot of um, our local governments have to walk between, uh, you know, you have people arguing that they've spent and invested millions of dollars into these waterfront properties and they have a right to try to protect them. And then the other side of that line is, yeah, but what you're doing to protect them is most likely causing even more damage. Further on down the line. So what do you do? And damaging neighboring properties, right? Right. Exactly. Somebody else who has invested millions of dollars. <laughs> exactly. By reflecting that energy. Right. And then wait until you see the lawsuits that result when a homeowner doesn't feel that the towns or villages are giving him every tool that he has at his disposal to protect his property. Boy, it's going to be ugly. I mean, that, that was interesting. Maybe, Georgie, you remember this, I'm sure back a number of years ago in Sag Harbor when there was a homeowner who wanted to raise his house because that's what FEMA was saying. Anybody who's in a certain zone should raise their property to to keep it safe and to get flood insurance. But it was a historic house down in the very low-lying historic neighborhood. So you kind of had, I thought was really fascinating, like village ordinances of uh, preservation and historic integrity versus the idea of what the government wants people to do in order to keep their houses out of a flood zone. Um, so uh, do you remember that, that case, Georgie? I do. I forget the name. Was it Gruen? I don't, I'm not sure. But I remember the house and it is down. It's actually in a part of Sag Harbor that's, um, you know, behind Main Street and West Water Street and Long Island Avenue. And that part of Sag Harbor floods tremendously anytime there is any sort of large storm and the tide is you know coming in at the wrong time and the moon phase is such it's a disaster back there and um you know i think that one thing that i'm curious to explore with michelle in this series is how municipalities look at zoning through the lens of climate change because you look at other coastal communities and what they've had to mandate and you know houses up on um, basically a full story are what places um, like Brightsville Beach demand of your, you know, houses in low lying areas like that, because it's, it's the only way to ensure that, you know, you can get insurance. Um, but also if you're expecting a storm surge, you know, once a year, once every two years, like it's guaranteed, you know, that's how you have to plan. And it'll be really interesting to see how a community like Sag Harbor, which has a designated historic district and has fought actually against things like solar panels that are visible from the street, among things like raising houses. How do you continue to protect your historic district and your historic character while also living in this reality that we find ourselves in. Well, even the window, the window controversy, they don't want people to replace with new windows. It's like, so you're just basically watching the heat and energy pour out these old wavy glass windows that look cool, but are probably not the best for the mm -hmm. environment. And, you know, I have to point out that the, the fight over beach hardening structures and the, the push and pull with protecting homes, you would think that was sort of a settled issue 
on the South Fork, but that's actually continues to be a debate because I know as recently as a few years ago, Southampton Village essentially um, said, you know, village officials were saying that that property owners have a right to protect their houses and they were going to they were going to weigh that um, as part of the equation when they decided whether to allow hard structures or not, even as most of the science, I think, tells us that hard structures are are only a temporary solution. They destroy the beaches in front of those hard structures. And as, as you guys noted, they also cause more erosion on neighboring properties. And I think that's fairly, um, I, I think that's settled science, but still because of the value of the value of some of these houses on, on the South Fork, it's still a, a policy that's up for debate, I think. In some but, the, but then, but that, then that evolved into into a, a new into a new debate, though, right? Because instead of hard structures, then they were allowing the the use of like inflatables and uh, geo cubes and and those types of temp, quote unquote temporary structures that has the same effect as a hard structure, but because they're 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 deemed temporary, then then maybe they're allowed. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, and, and you're right, Joe. And you, you, I mean the the whole hard structure debate. I mean, it, it certainly, um, you know, you, you've seen issues with that way, way before climate change. And you saw that in West Hampton Dunes, where you had, you know, you had the rich homeowners um, to, to, to the east of, of West Hampton, you know, erect the groins out, out into the water to try to control the erosion. And it completely left West Hampton Dunes open, you know, and, and was destroyed 20, 20, 30 years ago now. Um, almost and had to be rebuilt by the Army Corps and the Army Corps has to continue to maintain put putting sand, um, you know, into that community to maintain the beaches there. Uh, but you do see the you do see the evolution there where when the homes were rebuilt there, then they were built up. Um, and, and so they are prepared for for more storms and all that. But how for, for how long can you have this, this temporary solution of you know, putting sand on these beaches and, and in West Hampton Dunes is this temporary solution to a, you know, to a permanent problem um, that, that just doesn't seem to be forthcoming an answer to that. And when you have a historic district with a lot of low-lying historic houses, that's going to be, you know, it's one thing to rebuild a beach house on the beach, but to try to figure out what to do with this, you know, 1730 salt right. box in a floodplain, I think that's where you're going to see a lot of really, really questionable things. But I think that one of the things that concerns me out here, you know, whether it's Sag Harbor Village, you know, being unmoving on certain, um, you know, technological upgrades that would help, you know, not prevent, but <laughs> stave off severe climate change, like, you know, the introduction of solar panels and um, things like that. But then also what you see happen when we start talking about coastal retreat in Montauk a few years ago and people just flipped and were like, you know, they didn't even want to have the conversation in a lot of cases. And these are property owners, you know, a lot of them commercial that, I mean, if you go to Montauk and go to downtown Montauk and, you know, walk out to the beach right off of downtown, I mean, the the water is right there, man. <laughs> and it's, it, it's not going to get any better, but it's like, 
people just don't want to hear that it's going to happen here. Partially, I think because of these high home values, these high property values that we have, but I mean, this is inescapable, you know, so at a certain point, municipalities are going to have to kind of force these conversations to have a little bit more urgency. I mean, Michelle, what was the response from government officials that you talked to this week, you know, when kind of asked like when when does the rubber meet the road on you know when we start pushing forward on some of this stuff they didn't have a straight answer for me you know and understandably so uh these are really hard questions to answer when we don't know exactly what's going to happen there's no timeline for this immediately in front of us um to your points earlier it's something that we to the untrained eye do not see until it starts affecting us we don't see it so i think you know, these questions do need to be answered now because it takes forever for action to be taken. Uh, just look at FIMP. It has been in progress for decades and we're just now finally getting funding from Congress to make it happen. So, you know, I, I hope that the series does push government officials to answer these really hard questions and to start um, taking action, definitive action, because it, it needs to happen now. Uh, you know, Alison Branco with the Nature Conservancy, she said, we are past that point. Like this should have happened already. So I wonder, is there a big disconnect too between, I mean, you know, just like everything else seems so political, I imagine that the belief in climate change has really gotten very political now and people who just don't want to admit that this is happening. Like, I wonder what, what, what do you feel like? Because Nature Conservancy does a lot of outreach. Does she give you any sense of what what kind of pushback or or um, attitudes she's encountering? It's getting less and less. You know it, that that sort of resistance was higher a number of years ago for sure. Um, but I think it is becoming less of a partisan issue. Whether you believe that this is caused by humans or not, the facts are the facts. This is where we are. This is where we stand, and something needs to change. And I think that that more people are coming around to that. Um, you know mode of operation than before. I think the climate change, climate change denial is is less and less of a of an issue, I think, these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website. SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. And so it's it's not like they're not doing anything though, right? And you talked a little bit on in your story about some of the efforts that 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 locally that the towns have, have been taking to you know to address climate change in, in, in general. Talk about a little bit of, you know, I mean, there were some solar panel discussions, um, like, like you mentioned, the beach nourishment stuff. What, what else have they, they've been working on? 
Right, there have been some um, solar initiatives in both Southampton Town and East Hampton Town. Um, East Hampton Town installed um, solar on top of their Parks Department building, which has been very successful. Uh, Southampton Town is in the works of installing a solar array on top of uh, the North Sea landfill. Uh, so they hope that that will generate electricity that could power anywhere from 400 to 900 homes per year. Wow. Uh, so that has, you know, there's tremendous opportunity there. And um, all of the uh, supervisors and mayors I spoke to, you know, they take climate change into consideration when making decisions in general. That's something that's always in the back of their mind. And that's hugely important. As far as there being any sweeping legislation or policies regarding climate change, though, that is something that's still in the works. It's been in the works for a number of years and they're getting closer. But like Georgie pointed out, a lot of this was just shoved to the back burner during COVID because COVID, you know, what are you going to do? Like that took everyone's primary attention. So now I think with that circling back, these conversations are starting again. And it's great. It's super important. We just have a long way to go. Yeah, well, it's good we got some wind power going, I guess that's, but there's still even a lot of opposition to the wind farm stuff, you know, so I don't know, it's just very, um, it's just very interesting, even, even a fairly enlightened population, you know, that can see it, it has a lot of, again, it's about having, you know, that, that fusion power next to you, you know, makes people a little nervous. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm curious, Michelle, you said, you know, the plan is for a 12 part series. I don't think we have all 12 parts charted out yet so that we can be a little bit sort of flexible as we go forward. But what, what do you see um, talking about some of the future um, installments of the rising tide? Yeah, absolutely. So next month, uh, I'd really like to take a look at other coastal communities that are battling problems that are similar to ours and how they are handling or not handling those same problems. Uh, and then after that, circling back to our planning departments and saying, hey, this is what other communities are doing. What do you think? And kind of getting their perspectives on that. And um, again, getting an overview from them of where we currently stand, since at that point it'll have been two months since this first story ran, and just to get their reactions to that. Um, after that, I would love to pivot the series into uh, something that feels a little bit more accessible for local residents and what they can be doing to uh, create a little bit of change in their corner of this world. So everything from uh, composting and recycling to uh, setting up their home for an electric car, which I know can be a very overwhelming process on the surface. So to really break that down for people and explain these are the steps. And also, you know, solar, same kind of exploration. And from there, who knows? I would love suggestions if any of our listeners or readers have them. Send them on in. Yeah, fusion. That's the future. Fusion power. I'm telling you, it's very exciting. That'll, that'll cap off the series, Joe. <laughs> I, I gotta tell, it would be nice to finish on a positive note. Um, I, I tip my hat to you, Michelle, because as we've talked about, this is a topic that is of critical importance and something that has been on our to-do list for some time now. And I'm just thrilled that you're picking up the, uh, picking up the baton and running with it because it's, uh, it's something that needs to be talked about. And we really, I, you know, I think you've touched on it a couple of times. These are not conversations that are taking place in any kind of regular basis 
in town and village halls where you know sweeping changes are probably needed. Sweeping changes don't happen very often in town and village halls. And it takes a lot of conversation to really get there. Um, but there are a lot of folks having this conversation. I think of Drawdown uh, Southampton, which is, which is leading this conversation uh, in, a, in a separate venue. And uh, there, these things are taking place around us, but it's gonna be time soon to sort of pressure our elected officials to start doing something. I mean, you know, we can talk about it all we want and I think everybody gives lip service to the topic, but um, we need real substantive action to start addressing what's coming in 10 and 20 and 30 years, uh, maybe sooner, uh, maybe a lot sooner. Scary, you know, it's scary to think that, but uh, I think it's already starting. Rough out there, guys. Man, doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah, that's Got to be aware. But there's aware. always fusion power. So <laughs> backyard so bunkers. Keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, guys, go out there and start digging a hole. It's time to stock up on emergency rations, right? Yeah, now. that seems to be the theme of the day. Am I the only now, one getting those emails? Yes, you <laughs> are. I love, I love that the emergency rations people are just making no bones about just stirring up our fears at this point. But they also have like, they're incredibly optimistic. They're like, you know, food pods for a hundred years. I mean, that's, you know, if it was like, <laughs> you know, 45 minutes, it would be like, okay, they don't expect us to make it too long. A <laughs> hundred years. That's like a generational, like faith in humanity. It's probably time. Yeah. Now. A lot of faith. I think I want to get ahead of the game and I want to start the beneath the planet of the apes cult. Like you remember the 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 underground cult that, ah. that with the nuclear bomb and everything. I think I think maybe I'm going to start that. I think you just did, Joe, with all your talk about nuclear fusion. That's maybe maybe that should be the central. <laughs> that should be the organizing theme of my cult. Yes. Yeah. Development of clean energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad cult. A cult for good. Don't all cults think they're for good? <laughs> I think that's another bumper sticker you have to start working on. A cult for good. Send me your money. <laughs> 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.